Coming to you from the foothills of Los Angeles, it's time for In My Voice with actress, voiceover artist, director, and coach, Kathy Grable. With over 20 years behind the mic, Kathy brings you a unique perspective of working VO actors whose voices you'll know, but their stories you probably don't. Now sit back and enjoy In My Voice. Today, we're talking to a true Renaissance man, actor, writer, teacher, and voice talent, Stephen Tobolowsky, better known to most movie buffs as Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. His career and credits are too long to mention, but let's just say during the stay-at-home lockdown, my family and I saw Stephen in three movies and TV shows in one night. This is the first of two podcasts with Stephen. So sit back, enjoy, and if you're someone wanting to be in the entertainment business, learn. I wanted to tell you, Stephen, that I am so glad and honored that you came on today. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I also think you're one of the most talented, prolific actors, and just creatively, you I mean, you can do it all. And you're one of the best storytellers I know. I just love hearing you tell stories. But you are also a great human being. I'm going to get a little choked up here. Um, That was one of the reasons why I remember a specific time in my life where there was an act of human kindness you might not even remember that just really made a difference in my life uh, when I was going through a deep loss. So I think you're you're great all the way around. So thank you. But yeah hard times, you know, that it's, you know, how, how do we get through the hard times? That's Mm -hmm. always a big question. Well, one of the things I remember about that, Stephen, is that you were tuned in and aware enough and you said, let's go sit down because we were at a, a, a function. We were at a function. Yeah. So it was like, it was an entertainment function and you just, you took that moment in time and I was like, I'll always remember that moment in time. And that's in some ways what we try to do, isn't it? But that was real life. That was real life. I, I, um, I was thinking today that, uh, I was remembering back to a class I had in college, uh, humanities class. And the teacher was, giving us three different books and each book was an, had an example of a satori each of the major characters had a satori now mm-hmm. i had no idea what a satori was <laughs> and i guarantee no one in our class knew what a satori was right right however everyone in the class wanted to have a satori simply mm-hmm. because the teacher was saying let's have a satori right <laughs> uh, and that became a satori for me Mm-hmm. In that people want things even though they don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. Before, before I had that Satori class, I always thought that wanting and the object of what you wanted were linked always. Mm-hmm. But then I saw, no, in the Satori class, you could want things that you have no idea what you're pursuing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in subsequent years that satori has grown into what we do as actors and mm-hmm. what we do voice actors painters dancers musicians we're fishing for satori's mm-hmm. and most of the time we don't catch nothing 
mm-hmm. and we just walk on. But what we try to do is we try to find the moment where, and for those who don't know what Satori is, like most people in the world, a Satori is a kind of, was a hepcat way of saying back in the 50s or whatever, is when the veil is lifted. Mm-hmm. And you suddenly see the world a different way. But not only do you see the world a different way, but you can never see the world the same way again. Uh, and in terms of our little exper- our little meeting at the mm-hmm. soiree we were at, it art interactions, everything becomes a matter of priority. Mm-hmm. And if there's somebody that you care about, i.e. you, I cared Thank about you. you, you're so much more important than a party. Yeah. And so it's a matter of you switch priorities. And, and, and that's kind of just kind of been my rule that wherever you are, you, 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 you don't have that much time to waste. So you mm-hmm. might as well go to the object that's most important and the subject that's most important. Oh, I love that, Stephen. And I think that's so important in our business because we get pulled away so much and you can get, you can get um, immersed in things that aren't important anymore or aren't even who you were. And you really have to take a breath. And that's something, you know, it's very timely with what we're going through right now. And um, one of the things I thought was very timely because we're doing this via Zoom and during the Safer at Home and all the other things going on right now is that I have had so many people say to me, it's just like Groundhog Day. It's just the same. (laughs) And I was like... I wonder if Steven's gotten that. Have you? Have you gotten that from friends? Like every damn day. Yeah, so, I bet. <laughs> not only that, I got a, a tweet today from somebody who saw it on Seth Meyers' show last night in which they tweeted like, it's here I am at home, and then they show Bill Murray, and he, and he goes, and it's just like Groundhog Day. And then he flashed my picture on screen, and we all still hate Ned Ryerson. Oh, Yeah. Um, for those of you, I mean, everybody knows you by Ned Ryerson, I think, except my kids know you as the principal of the Goldbergs primarily. Oh, yes. And that when I say you're prolific, we literally have rented three movies or streamed three movies in a row where you're in them. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's like, oh, there's Steven. There's Steven. Um, so, but yes, Ned Ryerson, that, that's great. Uh, the, one of the reasons I started this podcast was all the amazing people that have come into my life. And in mm. some ways, the small world things that I think now with Facebook and Instagram and all that, you go, oh, well, you know, things were planned and they really weren't. You know, they, they were, um, in fact, your book, uh, Dangerous, oh, I've got it here. In my, oh, The Dangerous Animals Club, yes. actually. Um, I was reading that on a road trip because you were kind enough. You signed it. We were both teaching together mm-hmm. and had worked together. And by the way, if you ever get a chance to take anything that Stephen does, any workshop or anything, I, I say it's one of the best experiences as an actor that you can. So I feel like this audience is, you know, primarily voiceover actors, but actors as well. Mm-hmm. And, and people that just enjoy hearing stories about 
this whole crazy town and crazy business. But I feel like there's a small world thing. And when I was reading that book on a road trip from Texas to Kansas, we were driving that seven hour drive going to see family. And my kids were howling, laughing. I mean, and they kept saying, Mom, I mean, these are just like those theater stories. These are just like those theater stories. And um, there's actually, I don't even know if you know this. I want you to tell the story about <laughs> when you convinced someone um, that you spoke Spanish, because that oh, one's God. great in there. But I ha before we get to that, you have a whole chapter where you worked at the Jewish Community Center in North Dallas. Am I correct? I, I worked at a Temple Emmanuel in North Dallas. I didn't work at the JCC, I don't right. think. But, but Temple Emmanuel, I taught uh, drama to the kids there. Um, what I were think, you referring to? I'm trying I think, to think. Of I think that that is where I, anyway, it was one of those things I went, I did that one summer too. I'm pretty oh, sure wow. it was the same place I did when you were probably already out here. And one of the stories that just hit me, as you said, you know, then here came the moms and anybody that's, that's done that children's was theater. The Temple in, Emmanuel in Dallas, the right. attack of the moms. Oh <laughs> my God. Said, and how you said every one of them, because I could so relate because I, I worked in the children's department, Dallas, Dallas theater center, and then Temple Emmanuel and how they all convinced you that every one of their children should have a role. And so you gave everyone a role and it ended up being like a three hour show. I was uh, just dying was, laughing. It was a five or seven hour show. Yeah. I, it isn't that they convinced me. <laughs> okay. It's that I surrendered. Okay. After, after, you know, the first mom I was listening is they wanted her little darling. Well, she has such a small role. She, she needs to have a bigger part. And I was trying to talk about the pluses and minuses of little Who's, who's her, what's its uh, abilities? You know, she she was a little shy in front of people that maybe she should just take baby steps. And then I said, okay, I'll give her. An, and then the next mom came right. and I realized, oh, I got it. This isn't like reasoned. This is just grab what you can grab. Right. And, and so after about the third mom attacked me that their little one didn't have a big enough part, I just kept adding scenes to the show. And and, the show, and I thought, my vengeance is going to be that these parents are going to have to sit in that audience for hours and right. watch these children do Casey at the bat one right. after the other. Right. It's like the Chinese water torture. Uh-huh. It's great. Yes. It's great. But I was just, again, I thought, man, that's one of those small world things because I didn't even know when we met that you grew up in Dallas and all of that and, and having that uh, similar experience kind of thing. But I want to start at the beginning, and I do want you to tell me that convincing them that you spoke Spanish because that's such a great story. But when you were a kid, did you want to be an actor? Right off the bat, when I was about five years of age, I think I wanted to be an actor, and this is a sort of a pathetic evolution. I wanted to be an actor because I thought monsters were real. Mm. And I loved them. I loved oh. the mummy, the wolfman, uh, Dracula. I especially loved Godzilla. I, oh, I, yeah. I remember asking my brother if, if I could be Godzilla, would I be able to have bad breath like Godzilla? 
And he said, well, you're not going to, but then I later found out anyone could have bad breath. But yeah. <laughs> I thought the monsters were real and that if I became an actor, I could go and hang out with these monsters all day. And that evolved when I got in, and that got me into plays when I was a little mm -hmm. kid. I, I played Hansel and Gretel. I won second best peewee actor, I oh think, my gosh. with... I wonder who won first place. But a second place peewee actor uh, with Marsha Housewright, she played Gretel and I had to kiss her in it. And and my <laughs> bedtime was eight o'clock at, right. at that time. So I performed and then I had to go, to go home and go to bed. I couldn't stay for the award ceremony, but my Aunt Esther came back and told me that I was awarded second best peewee actor. So then my ego was stoked. Oh, and yeah. I was I was ready. So I, in high school, I did all the speech tournaments and acting. I was big actor in high school. In college, it moved from monsters to. I learned great writers, Chekhov mm -hmm. and and Ibsen and Shaw and Shakespeare and Marlowe and, and I began thinking that acting was noble, mm -hmm. noble. And then I got out of college and realized nobody did those plays, really. I mean, I think since I left college, I've done one reading of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I did it with the a Royal Shakespeare Company. Oh, that's pretty so That was pretty, pretty cool. good. I, did, I yeah. did Hamlet with them. I did Polonius and Hamlet. So the one Shakespeare thing I did was a damn good one. But, 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 <laughs> uh, then I realized that it really does have to do with monsters being real. When you're in Los Angeles, you realize that they are real and right. you're working with them maybe sometimes on a daily basis. Well, and, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Actually, that was one of, uh, one of my questions. I'm like, oh, so many places we could go. But one of my questions was, uh, what is... Well, I have a couple of them that would probably fit with that. But what is your favorite celebrity that you've ever worked with? God, so many in so many different ways. Uh, like I'll, I'll do some of the obvious ones. Working with Meryl Streep, I worked with her and I found her just absolutely delightful, incredible professional uh, in, in adaptation. And my part got completely cut out of that. Mm. Uh, but isn't that painful when that happens? Yeah, but nah. You, yeah. you know, you, you re <laughs> the first it time. Is, well, well, you realize you realize that you're not paid by the pound. Mm -hmm. uh, if your name is in the credits at the end, they still have to pay you. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, a lot of times things get cut out because you're no good or because the movie's too long mm -hmm. or it's going on a you know, they do a test audience and they lose track of what's right. happening. So I learned like you really have to, like, like I, if I were to say to you, Kathy, like, okay, so if they cut you out of a movie, are you going to quit? No. No. And in fact, you still, I love that you still get paid. You still get the experience. Like when you said you got to work with Meryl Streep, you still got to work with Meryl Streep. Yeah. Still had I, that experience. I, I did uh, NYPD Blue and, <laughs> and, and it just went great. And the director loved me and, you know, I was really creepy. And 
awful. And at the end of the day, I came home and told my agent, he said, how'd it go? Because NYPD Blue was number one show on mm -hmm. TV. Fantastic. I said, it was great. I mean, we had a wonderful time playing a terrible part, but I think it was really exciting and really worked. Mm -hmm. Three weeks later, I get a phone call from Rick Overton, a fellow mm -hmm. actor who was in Groundhog Day with me. Right. 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 And that's where I really worked with Rick. He was one of the drunk guys who, you know, Bill and them all run into the train together. You mm -hmm. know, they go crazy driving right. in the car. That was Rick Overton. And he said, what happened, buddy? And I said, what happened with what? He said, well, NYPD Blue. I said, it was great. I don't know. He says, Stephen, I just finished replacing you in NYPD Blue. Oh, yeah, that's when. They, they fired you and, and they hired me to do all your scenes. I mean, did it, what happened? I said, it went great. I don't know. So anyway, I was depressed. Mm -hmm. I was upset. Uh, and then David Milch, in another year or two, called me into Deadwood and gave me, and I was on Deadwood for the next two years. Right. And that's one thing. It's one thing leads to another. And we never know at the time, like when you were filming Groundhog Day, what you had no idea what it would become, that it would just become this cyclical thing. Or did you? No, no. We, we you know, when we first started with the script of Groundhog Day it was what I would call kind of a, a good Bill Murray movie. Mm -hmm. It was Bill with no consequences and it gave him plenty of opportunity to be very, very bad and mm -hmm. do the things that Bill does. Unpredictable, crazy, comic genius that he is, that, that he could do all these things. Uh, the, the street scene, Bill and I had nine street scenes in the movie, even though it looks like one because it's Groundhog mm -hmm. Day and it's always the same. Right. But we shot it nine different ways on nine different times. And we were first up the first day. Wow. And and so I was scared as could yeah. be. And uh, yeah, where was this in your career at the time, would you say, Stephen? It was it was before Groundhog Day. Mm -hmm. Before <laughs> before <laughs> Groundhog Day. Before Groundhog Day, I was the bald guy with glasses that they could always bring in to be the principal or whatever. After Groundhog Day, I was the bald guy with glasses who was in Groundhog Day. Right, right. It completely changed my career, the arc of my career. But that first week, at the end of that, so that's day one, is Bill and I starting to shoot in the street. At the end of that first week, there was a huge set piece of Bill discovering that he, that he is, has no time. Everything is repeated and he has no consequences. Mm -hmm. And this was demonstrated with probably a two page montage scene of Bill doing crazy things, mm -hmm. of, uh, of spray painting his room at the end and laughing, getting a chainsaw spray, you know, chainsawing his room <laughs> into, uh, getting a mohawk, shaving his hair into a mohawk. And, yeah you know, face painting and doing tattoos, you know, all sorts of crazy things. It took two, two and a half days to shoot. And you figure there's 70 people on a crew, maybe, maybe 50 to 70 mm -hmm. people on a crew. It's the first week of shooting. Harold Ramis saw the footage at the end of the first week of shooting and threw it away. Really? 
exactly. Really? He threw it away and he told me later, he said, Stephen, I was thinking, what is the movie we're doing? What is the movie we're telling? And I think I was talking to Danny Rubin, our, our screenwriter, and Danny and I both decided this is a movie about how we spend the time of our life. Oh. Not about Bill doing a whole bunch of crazy things. Right. So, and to me, I thought it was a balls to the wall move of Harold Ramis. Because mm -hmm. the first week you're shooting, if you're a director, the studio is looking over your shoulder to mm -hmm. see how is my money being spent? How is my time being spent? Mm -hmm. And this is the big funny Bill Murray scene. Right. This is why we have Bill here. Right. And he throws it away. And instead, Harold Ramis changed the scene to... Bill is in his bed at night and he's taking notes and he puts a pencil. He has a pencil behind his ear and he takes it out and he breaks it in two. And he puts one part of the pencil on the bedside table and one on top of the clock radio where Sonny and Cher is always playing. Yeah. And Bill turns out the light and goes to sleep. And in the morning he wakes up and turns and the pencil is whole. Wow. And when I saw it with a full house, the audience gasped. Yeah. And what Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin did is they replaced that crazy mayhem of Bill Murray with poetry. Mm -hmm. And it was at that moment, at the end of that first week, that we started getting new pages. Mm -hmm. And what happened is the original film ended closer to where Bill is trying to commit suicide. And then he decides, you know, he jumps off the tower and uh, it doesn't work. He's still alive, you know, mm -hmm. but they move that further up in the script, maybe to what you would call the end of act two. Mm -hmm. And they added all that stuff at the end of act three, Bill saving the kid from the tree, Bill's with the women with the flat tire, mm -hmm. uh, Bill trying to save the bum and eventually being unable to save the bum, mm -hmm. that there's not everything you could do. All of this stuff that became what act three is what made Groundhog Day more than just a nice, funny comedy. Absolutely a classic, really. It made it, it made it genius. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I've gotten so many people, they love the film because no matter what their cause is or Zen Buddhism, uh, substance abuse. Hey, I got called to Oakland Stadium because the Oakland Raiders were using Groundhog Day as their training film. And they wow. took me down onto the field and I got to shake hands with some of the players because everybody loves Ned. And I thought, how amazing. Now, why would a football team, especially the Oakland Raiders at yeah. the time, want to use Groundhog Day as their model. You know, it, it is, you, you have to, it isn't a matter of making the same mistake over and over and over again. I think it was more, I forget who it was, either Einstein or Freud or one of those people who said, if you're doing the wrong thing over and over again is a sign of mental illness. Mm -hmm. I don't, that, that's one thing. You, you, if you're doing it wrong, you need to change. And I think that's what Groundhog Day teaches everyone. That's why, in a beautiful, funny way. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm listening to that thinking, who would have thunk it, you know? Like that you were a part of history in a way 
that would affect sports teams, that would affect, obviously, you know, one reason I think I wanted to get into this business as well. And I, I, when you were talking about your Hansel and Gretel beginning <laughs> moment, mine was Babes in Toyland. And I, I played, someone asked me this, I was asked to do a one woman show. And if you were watching me now, I'm, I'm, actually creating it but i was one of the dolls that came out of the package that you wound up it's a it's an operetta i believe and um it was past my bedtime too so i remember my mother said we why don't you take a nap and i you know i was like in kindergarten or first i was in first grade i think so i was like why would i take a nap but they wrapped the packages and we had to walk through the wrapping paper and it was just uh but but i'm just thinking of whether I was experiencing it as an actor or watching it, I felt like I learned things about life and there were aha moments and there were things that went off. I feel that way with reading too, that it's not like you never thought about it sometimes, but in a way you never thought about it. It's like the light bulb didn't go off. And I think that that happens so many times when people are watching movies. And I think Groundhog Day you can have a different takeaway. A lot of movies you can do that, but at different times in your life, it'd be very, that's a, a movie that would be very interesting to go, how did I look at this when I was 20? How did I look at this during this COVID epidemic? I mean, I was watching something with a group of people we were actually watching on Zoom. It was a group that had been getting together and then we were doing it over Zoom. And we were watching this kind of teachable moment video. And it was a surgeon showing, he, he'd gone off, he'd, he'd um, help people, it was kind of like a Doctors Without Borders type of thing. Mm -hmm. And he was showing how to wash your hands. And we were like, we are watching this so differently. How many years ago was this recorded? And how timely is it now? And how would we have looked at that five years ago? You know, so um, that's that's something that, we don't even know how it'll affect people after we're gone. You know, I, I think it is poetry, it is literature, it is art, and there's something otherworldly about it. Um, yeah, when, when, I, when I was doing Groundhog Day, and of course I was scared as hell, because mm -hmm. Bill and I were up 6.30 in the morning that first day, and I'd been working on another film in, La, in Paris, California at the same time. And so I left the LA area that afternoon got to Woodstock, Illinois at two 30 in the morning for a six, six 30 call. I was going to have four hours of sleep. I was terrified. And I met Bill and I look out and there were about 500 townspeople there to watch us do the scene. And standing there is David Nichols. Ah. David Nichols is a man that I have seen four times in my life. The uh, third time I saw David Nichols was when I was doing Great Balls of Fire in Memphis, and David was working as the set designer for Great Balls of Fire when I got married to Anne. Wow. So he was there for my wedding. The, wow. Uh, now, th this was the fourth time. The... Uh, First time I saw David Nichols, I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And our drama teacher at Kimball High School in Dallas 
brought David Nichols in to teach comedy. Wow. And he was an actor in Dallas at the time. Mm -hmm. And David came in and started teaching um, me ping pong and pause and hold for a laugh and, mm -hmm. and, how, to, and how to do comic timing and all this. Uh, second time I met David Nichols was the, my first day in LA if I didn't want to skip that over, was the first time, and I had lunch. David asked me if I wanted to have lunch, and he was working on New York, New York, and my first day in L.A., I had lunch with Robert De Niro, Liza Minnelli, oh. and uh, Martin Scorsese, the guy who directed Wow. So, so that was my first day in L.A. So my first time with David Nichols, I was 15 years old, and he was teaching me about comedy and comic Amazing. acting, and I come out there scared to death of Bill. Fourth time I met David, he's standing in the crowd and he gives me a thumbs up. And I wow. went like, yes. And in a way, I think that's what we do mm -hmm. is, is that sometimes our work extends through time. I mean, the amazing thing about acting and it, there's like an amazing thing about baseball. Baseball is the only sport I could think of is where you do offense as one against many and defense you work as a team mm -hmm. in the same yes. game. Acting. I think there was a saying, acting on theater on stage is written on water. Mm. It's mm. gone. As soon yeah. as you do it, it's gone. But I have to tell you, I'd be walking down the street, people will come up to me from having seen me on stage at a certain point in time. And mm -hmm. like you say, that, that show, that performance made such a difference in my life. And that's kind of what art does. As mm -hmm. we fish for Satori's, sometimes people will watch us do something and it will change their life forever. And hopefully, and don't hopefully for the good. Yeah, hopefully for the good. And you don't even always know that. And right. I so understand that where there have been people where I was doing, you know, I did some national tours. I did summer stock. I started off in the theater. Then you end up seeing them in LA. Uh, people that were in your, in your life for just a moment, but they connected you with someone who ends up being your, your best friend. And you're both like, it, you know, it's, I've seen people across the world. I've gone across the world and been waiting for a bus and gone, oh my gosh, there's, and we're not even working on the same job, you know, it, it's amazing what a small world it can be, especially in the arts, but in such a wonderful way. I bet when he gave you the thumbs up, I bet that meant more to you. Than just about anything in yeah. the world. I felt yeah. like suddenly I had roots that went back to when I was 15 mm -hmm. and I wanted to do it for David. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of Sometimes people say, and it's, I know it's true with voiceover, and, uh, you know, where you have to imagine who the audience is mm -hmm. you're performing for. Mm -hmm. And usually, uh, and I, I tried to tell people, who are you performing for? And they go like, well, you know, yeah. I go, no, 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 no. You're performing for one person. Strongest you choice. Say, yeah. When you're doing a voiceover, there's someone in their car, a mom or a dad in mm -hmm. their car, and they hear it over the radio. You are performing for one person. Mm -hmm. You have to find out who that person is. A lot of times when we do theater acting or acting on film, 
we forget that simple lesson mm-hmm. of who who are we telling this story for? Right. Who is that person? And seeing David Nichols, I thought like, I want to tell this story to where David will be proud of me. Yeah. And yeah. We, we just lost David in this world. I'm so uh, sorry. About 10 days ago. Oh. Yes. That was, that was a bad one. But, but um, yeah. he, he had a very fulfilling life. Yeah. You know, very, very fulfilling, a great artist, an actor in Dallas, then became a painter, a graphic artist, and gravitated into design mm. with films and did a lot of big films. If you go on IMDb and you put in David Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, you'll see all of the movies David worked on. Mm. Amazing artist. Wow. I'm glad we could honor him. I you know, in this time, because his life goes on, doesn't it? I mean, through all the people he touched. And um, that's so lovely. And when I started this podcast, too, and one reason I chose the name In My Voice is having come from another part of the country. You know, I think that David touched your life in Texas, which touched your, and then I think sometimes people feel if they're not from LA or New York and they're interested in this business and they don't even know how to do their art. Well, first of all, I think that's, there's a writer I love, um, Madeline Engel. She wrote A Wrinkle in Time, so people know her from that, but she also wrote Diaries and she, that script was rejected. Oh, it's like a record number of times. I don't know. It was I'm thinking 54, 75, something like that. And she says, if we are called to be artists, it is our job to do it. It's not our job to decide we're going to win an Oscar. It's not our (laughs) job to decide, but it is our calling to do it. And I think that's such an example of that is you started out and you just kept growing and seeking and falling in love with Shakespeare and film and the people. And um, I love what you were talking about voiceover because that really is the base of so much of what we teach is who are you talking to? And because often we just have a mic and the mic is our audience Mm -hmm. in a way, but that's the single biggest thing that I hear when I'm working with somebody is if they're talking to someone and if it's a specific choice, wouldn't you agree? I th- I think so. And like when I do a podcast or something like that, I very much have in mind who I want to hear this story. Mm. And it's inevitably, there'll be a couple driving across the country in a car and let's listen to the Tobolowsky files or whatever. And they'll mm-hmm. listen to some of my stories. Uh, and, and I think, okay, I know very specifically who I want to hear this story. And it affects it affects the way I tell the story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think sometimes that is the easiest thing to forget. <laughs> as long as we've done it, don't you think? Where, especially as you you're like, oh man, they could just throw scripts at me. You know, you get to where you're doing it. I remember one time. This is one thing I thought was so fun is is you always hear about the actor's nightmare where we wake up and we can't. Uh, we do, all we know is we have to go on, but we don't know what the show is. We had to take a quick break, but dove right into Stephen's transition from stage and screen acting to voiceover acting. 
So we were talking about voiceover and one of the things I wanted to ask you was how did you make that transition? What was your first voiceover job? I, th- I think uh, voiceover was always something I wanted to do because I felt it, it can, if you're losing your hair and they want people with hair, you could still do voiceover mm-hmm. and they could draw the hair in. I, I, and I thought if it's raining, you know, you could still go and work in Los right. Angeles. And why, why shut that? I remember one of my first thoughts coming to Los Angeles is how do I get into voiceover? And it was also difficult. Mm-hmm. But I think the first voiceover jobs I got were amazing and lucky. I, I think generally because someone fell out and at my agency, like in the Jungle Book, that was one of the first jobs I did. And I mean, not the Jungle Book with Whoopi Goldberg, but the one before that. Right. Uh, and I played one of the hyenas. Oh, and, that's great. And so they had me audition and then they immediately said, can you come back later today and let's record this? Mm-hmm. So that was one of my first jobs. And it was some of my first residuals mm-hmm. was because the Jungle Book was so popular. And, you know, you were, you were joking about how you, you have all the movies and three, three of the movies I'm in. Yeah, you know, yeah. the, the key is the science formula is, do you want to make 50 phone calls or three phone calls? Mm-hmm. And casting directors generally want to make three phone calls and not right. 50. So if you work for a casting director, be it voiceover or film, and they like you, mm-hmm. they they don't have to make a lot of phone calls. Mm-hmm. So the same casting director would call me in to do a couple of cartoons. I did like Pete's Dragon. I, I, I did a few cartoon TV shows and movies and then nothing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I broke into commercials. Someone called me because of Groundhog Day and they said, we wanted oh, to yeah. do a Discover Card series of commercials with, Ned Ryerson with you doing some things. So I was the spokesperson for uh, Discover Card for like a year and a half or two years. That's a great gig. Yeah, it was it was an amazing gig. And then I was the spokesperson for Snickers Crisper for Mm. like two years. That was like a fun. And so suddenly I started breaking into uh, doing commercials, which was phenomenal. And right now, I'm the principal on Loud House. Oh, fun. And, and yeah. so I've been doing that for a few years. And and I did the principal on uh, Peabody and Sherman, oh, that movie. Oh, I love Peabody so, and Sherman. So yeah. here's an example. Like, the director of Peabody and Sherman was a fan of my podcast because of the story I told where I broke my neck in Iceland riding a horse on the side of an active volcano. Oh my gosh. Uh, I remember when you went to Iceland, we were at your house right before you went. I don't think I know you broke your neck. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was a bad one. So then it could have killed me. Could have, <laughs> yeah. It could have paralyzed and me. And here but I am laughing. No, this, terrible. this director doing this movie, loved that story because he was starting to write Icelandic horses. And so he became fascinated with our mutual hobby. And so he said, 
can you come in? We're drawing the character of Peabody and Sherman, the principal, to be exactly like you. And so could you do the voiceover? I go, well, sure. I was just yeah. honored and what a great movie. And I go in and then I see the principal as drawn to be exactly like me. It's yeah. this ball-headed, round-bodied, huge Adam apple, long nose. I'm thinking <laughs> like, oh my God, I'm a monster. You know, it's, thank you. Full but, circle, yeah. You know, you could, have, you could have, yes, that's right, full circle. You could have said, we, we wanted to do a really funny takeoff on you. But no, it looks just like you. But uh, and now with, with home, you know, I do a lot of, I just did an audition before I came online with you. And uh, again, I guess because of Loud House, and I did a few uh, Nickelodeon shows, mm -hmm. that I get a lot of Nickelodeon auditions to, to play different parts on Nickelodeon shows, which is great, uh, because they're always so terrific, and the scripts are so fabulous, and just love it. So that's kind of the creepy crawly of me getting into voiceover and Okay. But experience has taught me, ladies in the audience, if you are listening to the sound of my voice, if you think that show business turns its back on women, you have not tried animation. Right. Animation is created. Absolutely. Preserved, driven by women. Mm -hmm. And they write the shows, they produce the shows, they direct the shows, and 90% of the parts are women because the women have to play the young boys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so you have just a couple guys in there and you're in a room with like 20 women. And it is, I have met so many brilliant voiceover artists Oh, especially over that Nickelodeon studio. Mm -hmm. And I look at those women doing those voiceovers and I go, that is a level of skill and ability and talent beyond what I do. Mm -hmm. You well, know, I, you're I, I have a certain comedic thing I could do and I could do it in voiceover too. But what those women do, it puts me in awe. And and, and I keep asking for hints and advice and, and what you do. And a lot of times they'll work on little characters, little, little people that they observe and they think are funny and they record mm -hmm. the little bits of it and work to create these. They end up with an entire catalog of characters they can do probably back to back in two minutes. Right. They could probably do 30 different voices right. in, in two minutes because they have created and studied these voices from children to teenagers, to sex pots, to mothers and grandmothers. I did. Absolutely. Oh, was, I did, I did, uh, what was, um, I, I did a great uh, show. It wasn't with Nickelodeon. I'm trying to think who, it, I, I can't remember who it was with, but I was performing with a woman who played daughter, the mother, and the dog right. in the scene. And I had my one line. And then she would have a conversation with the three of them, with the dog barking occasionally. She carried the entire scene. Right. It was 
it was amazing to watch as to how great these artists are. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you do it. In fact, I have to say one of the things is we've been so fortunate. If you have a broadcast quality mic, if you have a studio at home, is that we've been able to work during this time. And so I hear you doing uh, auditions uh, beforehand. I'm actually going to be doing some mice after I'm done with this, some little teeny mics. But you you do very specifically what age they are, um, if they're four, if they're ten, if they're you know, as well as an old lady, um, a witch, you know, a reporter. You know, there's just so much work, and I love that you're saying that and how specific your catalog catalog of characters and how much fun it is. Yeah, they get us, I think, for five characters now sometimes so anyway it's it's uh great to be able to that flexibility and i feel like voiceover is the closest thing to theater don't you think absolutely especially zoom theater i want to show you something and Mm -hmm. show people something so oh you can't see because it's zoom but here's my phone here's my because it's it's so what this is 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 notes as a writer I have taken notes. Now, if you could see my phone, I have thousands of observations. Mm -hmm. Oh, I ran out of, I have thousands of observations I've made over the years and they're stored on my phone. If you could see it. Mm -hmm. And the women who work on voiceover, they do the same thing Mm -hmm. is their, their catalog is here. Right. And, and here and here, they create these characters and tune them up and get them where they want them. Mm-hmm. And once you create the voice, you also create the emotional life of the character, I mm-hmm. found. Once you find the voice of that character, that unlocks the, the door. Right. And, and, uh, it it affects you. I just remembered the name of the, the series I had done. It was Justice League. Oh, and, yes. And I worked with some of the absolutely greatest voiceover artists on Justice League for about two years. Oh. And uh, I played a floating head in, in, <laughs> in that. Um, but it was, it was amazing to watch those real talents at work. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, the things we do in the voiceover world, I mean, um, if you can sing, I mean, I've had jobs humming. When you talk about, um, I mean, there's always some little singing thing in there for animation or commercials. And there's characters, we talk about natural characters. Uh, I know I do at Kalmanson's, we met, um, well, we've met a number. I'm always like, where did we originally meet? Might have been Kalmanson's. But um natural characters because I did the Baskin Robbins talking spoon for years. And so that's a, that's an animated character within a commercial. So you can even do that. But one of the hardest things I ever had to do was snore and be a dog at the same time. It was this little high pitched dog. And then the director decided it would be funny or the writer, it might've been the writer if we would snore and I can snore and I can be a little high pitched dog, but to snore and then be the dog's voice or, something about that that was because you're it's very quick you know you but but that's what's so fun and that's why improv is so important in voiceover which you you teach and yeah it's great I love 
I always say that journal idea, whether it's on your phone or writing it down, just observations in life. Plus, I think it can be very healing because sometimes something can really tick you off. And then if you write it down, you're like, that was actually kind of humorous. Thanks for joining. In the next week or two, we'll drop the second part of my conversation with Stephen and talk more about his writing, but also for actors, aspiring or discouraged. Please tune in. It's like a master acting class. Don't miss it. In My Voice is a production of Word Merchants Media and is co-produced by Greg Perkins and Kathy Grable. Engineered and mixed by Alex Bogdasarian. And I'm Brent Huff, your announcer. For more information on this podcast, our scripted podcast, ebooks, private voice coaching, and more, visit KathyGrableStudios.com. Bye for now. <laughs>